HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45, 12.50 from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. How you doing, Jack? We got Jack in the studio today. Oh, I'm good. That was that was real energy right there. You like the Brooklyn, like the yeah. Br- you really br- went in. You know why? It's because I took a uh, a horse uh, ride over the weekend at Gettysburg along the battlefield, and so I got the. Br- br- in wow. The, yeah. Horse ride inspired Brooklyn. Yeah. Yep. You know, people used to ride horses here. Did you know that? Yeah. 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 Uh, so. So I think we have uh, Stas on the phone too. Okay. So. We do not have Nastasia the Hammer Lopez live in the studio today because uh, she is out in Chicago. Uh, she's not. I was about to lie and say she's covering the James Beard Awards for cooking issues, but that's just a straight up lie, right? We lost somebody. I uh, hope we didn't lose either people. Anyway, I don't know if we do. We have an extra line for people to call in, or we're done. Yeah, we, we got th- we got three lines. So all right. So uh, the big special guest we have on uh, air today is Richard Rangham. Richard Rangham is the, uh, let me get this uh, right here, the uh, Ruth B. Moore Professor of Biological Anthropology at Harvard. Uh, And uh, he wrote a kind of um, a book that I think was published in about 2010, I think, but I think it's remained influential. And I think it's more interesting, actually, to have him on. Uh, you know, six years after it's been published, so that we can see kind of what the impact has been and, and how it's how the theories in it have stayed, uh, you know, stayed the test over time. The book is called "Catching Fire: How uh, Cooking Made Him uh, Made Us Human." Uh, and do we, uh, Professor Rangham, are you on the phone? I am. Ah, hi. Good to good to speak with you. Good to speak with you. Um, so, it, it, by the way, I don't know whether like. How do you how do you, do you want to give the elevator pitch for what the book's about for those people that don't already have it? Or do you want me to, to to mutilate it for you, or what do you want to do? Well, well uh, uh, sure. Hello. Something's going on with the phone lines. Is here. that is that Professor Rangham's phone that's cutting out? Yeah, both both of the lines just cut out, so we'll have to have them call right back. All right. So listen, while we'll we're waiting, for, while we're waiting for them to call back, I'll just catch a few questions that we had. Uh, there you go. In advance, uh, Andrew is another Tandor question. Andrew wrote in, "Hello, I just started listening to the show and I love it. I thought I'd write in a question. I hope this is the right spot. I've decided it's time I bring a Tandor into my life. Good call. The internet is awash with videos of courageous DIYers building set ovens in their backyards. I have little DIY experience, but I'm not a halfwit and can follow directions. What do you think? Buy or build? Any tips or thoughts for a rookie?" learning to feast on tikka and naan. Cheers, Andrew. Listen, dude, if you don't like DIY stuff, the only reason to build a tandoor is because you really, 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 really want to build a tandoor, right? If you'd rather just, and you also like how much value does your time, uh, you know, have? Like I bought mine and I am an avid DIYer just because, um, I think in general it's better the first time you use a piece of equipment. If you had been gro- if you'd grown up and used Tandors your whole life and you knew what the geometry was and you knew how it was supposed to work and you roughly knew what mass it was supposed to be and you roughly knew what the you know the composition of the clay was and how it was reinforced and how it was used over time and you know kind of you knew all of those factors, then I'd say you know what build one, a lot of fun. But in absence of that, if you haven't actually used one before. 
probably a good idea to just get one from the professionals. The one I have, and they should pay me because I sent so many people to them. Uh, uh, I'm, you know, it's com. It's Gulati International, and they're in New Jersey. Uh, I was lucky enough. I live close enough. I was able to go get one. Uh, but if you don't, if you're not that lucky, uh, they will ship it. But I think the shipping is expensive because they're clay, and they they really uh, want you to ship them by truck carrier. So um, so there you have it. And uh, Jack, are we back yet? If not, yeah, I have one more yeah, question. Yeah, we're, we're back. We're back? We're back. All right. Uh, I will get to the second question before the end of the show. Uh, it's about uh, uh, Basbuza, the semolina uh, uh, cake. Anyway, okay, so Professor, we got Stas. We got you on the phone too? No, Hi, st- uh, hi uh, Richard Rangham here. Professor yeah. Rangham. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, now, do you want to give the, the elevator pitch or do you want me to give the elevator pitch and then you'll say what an idiot I am or how do you want to do it? Um, I, you should give the elevator pitch. All right, so so basically in – here, here, here's what I what I got out of it. So the question the the question is this: How is it, or why is it that human beings have evolved in uh, in a very kind of particular way? Why do we have uh, big, uh, very energetically expensive brains to run? Why is our digestive system short? Why are our jaw muscles puny? Why are our t- relatively puny to other things like uh, great apes? Why uh, why is it? Um, that our teeth are structured the way they're all these kinds of things. Why are we relatively erect? Uh, why are we relatively hairless? Why can't we climb very well? Uh, and if you, if the question is, is that these, these kinds of things started happening a long, long time ago, what caused those things to happen? And the kind of simplest explanation from an Occam's razor standpoint isn't any one of the normal kind of uh, things that have been posited, like tool use or any of these other things. Uh, really, the, the most simple Occam's razor thing is uh, cooking. Cooking can accomplish all of those things because um, if you cook foods, all of a sudden they are easy, much easier to chew. You don't have to chew as long. It takes a lot less time and you get a lot more actual caloric value uh, energy out of the foods once they're cooked versus raw. Basically right, Professor? Absolutely fantastic job, Dave. Yeah, no, that's really terrific. And um, so what it comes down to is this. Uh, what we know about humans is that uh, you cannot live on raw food in the wild. You know, uh, if you're a raw foodist, then you can survive uh, uh, on, um, on your salads and your smoothies and so on uh, in an urban environment in which you can take the highest quality food that you can find and uh, you can blend it and so on. But, but it's not good enough in the wild. That's what we've now realized for the last few years. So humans are, unlike every other species, we are adapted to eating our food cooked. We absolutely need to. So that's one, one big point. And then the other big point is, well, okay, if that's true, how long has it been true? Is it, is it uh, 50,000 years ago? Is it 5,000 years ago? Is it half a million years ago? And, uh, and actually, I think that there's a pretty easy answer to this, which is that it's been true as long as we have bodies like the bodies that we have nowadays. And when did we get those bodies? Well, everybody knows. It was uh, just, just decided two million years ago. Now... That one of the questions I have is hit it right at the beginning, and it's it's in the in the book. And here's the kind, of, and maybe there's been a lot of research since 2010. Uh, so one of the main arguments that um, critics have is there is no evidence of fire, remote like f- cooking fire, you know, non non happenstance fire. Um, Anywhere near that long ago. Your counterargument in the book is mostly, well, it's the easiest explanation and therefore should be accepted until an easier explanation is, is given. Is that still your 
it, A, is, am, I, am I putting your position correctly? And B, has that changed over the past six years? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, uh, n- no one can say yet that, uh, that there is definitely control of fire by humans going all the way back to when I am predicting it uh, at two million years ago. But uh, since, since the book was published, uh, we have had uh, fire, the date of control of fire being pushed uh, nicely back. So um, we've now got uh, a couple of places at 800,000 years ago, a place at a million years ago. This is you know, quite a lot more than the 250,000 years ago that people have traditionally thought. And, uh, and I'm uh, feeling very excited about reports I've been hearing about um, some evidence that is going to take the, the evidence for the control of fire back uh, to, to very close to, to when I think it um, it, it will eventually be shown. And, and so that that million that eight hundred thousand year old one is is a fairly accepted site. Yes, it is. Uh, that one is in in Israel, uh, and then uh, th- there's another one uh, which has just been published in Spain, uh, just about the same time. And then there's a million year one in South Africa. Huh. And, and let me. And so this is this is also something that I don't understand. I'm just curious. Is um, what is the difference between a 250,000 year old site that has been easily identified for a long time as having control of fire, and a site that's uh, a million years uh, a million years ago? What's the difference in technology or placement or how how the um, how the sites are preserved such that it makes it more difficult to trace it back? Like why is there that line? I mean, basically, uh, over these immense periods of time that we're talking about, then the further back you go, then uh, the more chance there is that uh, everything has been disturbed to the point that you're never going to be able to find what you're looking for. Um, I mean, here's one measure of the way in which it's disturbed. Uh, The half-life of a cave, that is to say the, the duration that a cave is going to exist, is something around a quarter of a million years. So that most caves have gone uh, after that time because of uh, erosion of the of the cave rock, that sort of thing. Right. Um, so th- there's all sorts of difficulties the further back you go, and the in the end, the way that people are finding evidence for the control of fire in the very early times, like a million years ago, is um, uh, more from um, microscopic grains of charcoal that uh, cannot be explained on the basis of anything else other than humans being responsible for making fire. What would the difference be on the microscopic level between, say, a lightning strike and human fire? Well, I mean, natural fires um, can produce uh, charcoal, of course, Um, but uh, uh, they tend to produce charcoal that ends up with uh, smaller grains than than human-made fire. that's been shown in um, you know, actualistic studies. Um, but the, the real thing that uh, characterizes the evidence for the use of fire by humans at a million years ago in South Africa is the fact that there is a very ancient cave. It's, fact, uh, it's really the only cave <clears throat> that has been found at that date. And deep in the cave, uh, 30 meters in, so uh, what, what's that, uh, 100 feet in, uh, you have uh, lots of buried charcoal, and uh, people say there's no way that you could have had any natural process that brought in the fuel. 
Because it's not the sticks it, and the grasses and that sort of thing that were being burned. So it had to be humans. Right. So it's not, it's not like a natural. It's not like West Virginia where we have all these coal things that catch on fire every once in a while. This is not like a coal-bearing cave or something like this. Right. Exactly. So, so but but you have to be very careful. You know, there's, there's lots of places where. Uh, people have found some evidence of burning associated with humans uh, way back, 1.5 million, 1.6 million years ago. But um, there's always the possibility that it was uh, a tree burning from a lightning strike uh, or uh, some other natural fire. So that's why you have to be so cautious. All right. So that's the, 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 the first uh, you know, thing I think that a lot of people bring up. And the, the second one, I'm curious whether there's been more research. And this is the core, really. And re- I was laughing. Uh, I actually uh, – I listened to it when, I'm, when I was driving the car. I got it on, um, on Audible. And uh, I was laughing out loud with the parts about the, the raw diet because uh, it's, been, it's been exactly my experience. I, I did the raw diet. I lost a bet and had to do the raw diet for a week. And I'll tell you, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't need any uh, scientific study to show that I wasn't absorbing my uh, calories. Just ask, ask my toilet. You know, it was like it's obviously the stuff runs straight through you. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, – I mean, to me, it's fairly obvious, and you're eating a preposterous amount of of, uh, of and this is like, as you say, you know, shopping in modern supermarkets and you know, modern having you. Know, I have a very expensive high speed blender um, and taking a lot of time to soak things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. I mean, using agricultural foods, and so of course, um, you know, the, the the quality of foods that are produced in on farms uh, is far higher simply from the point of view of producing energy than what you get in the wild. So, so you know, the, the fruits in the area that I work on, study chimpanzees in Uganda, uh, the average fruit has about as much sugar as a carrot right. uh, and, and far less than an apple or an orange and so on. So, so uh, the raw foods have all these advantages uh, that you mentioned, uh, including eating domesticated foods. Um, and, uh, yes, there's quite a lot of, of extra work that's now been done on this. And um, so uh, since the book was published, we've got uh, very nice data showing that uh, if you uh, feed mice on uh, cooked uh, tubers or, or on cooked meat or on cooked peanuts, then uh, they will get more energy uh, than eating raw. And as you say, I mean, anybody who's tried a raw food diet knows this. But uh, it's nice to be able to work out the mechanisms. Right. And uh, I think another thing that uh, I don't know whether a lot of people bring it up when they talk to you about the book, but the, another thing I thought was very interesting, and I, I didn't, I, you know, you expect to hear it um, in nutrition discussions, and you never do, never. Uh, in your book is a, basically a huge indictment of the way we, and I don't think you even explicitly bring it out this way, but a huge indictment of the way nutritional labels are printed. Um, because a calorie is clearly not a calorie is clearly not a calorie. It depends on the the structure of it, how much it's cooked, uh, how it's delivered to you, how much you chew, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What are your? Do you have any more current thoughts on that? Do you are you even interested in that? Is, it's not, or is it just not part of your field of study? Um, no, I mean I, I remain interested. Uh, it was uh, an epilogue in the book uh, uh, calling for a, a more rational approach to food labeling, and um, Rachel Carmody and I, uh, we ran a session at the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, uh, three or four years ago, where we brought together a number of people to, to reflect on the fact uh, that, as you say, it's, uh, it's very clear to all sorts of people, even though it's not very often talked about, 
that the food labeling system does not capture what you want it to know, which is uh, how much weight will I put on from eating this particular kind of food. Um, it, it's all very uh, uh, ironic because uh, the scientists do know, do they do understand on the whole that uh, processing matters enormously and that the, the more highly processed your food is, uh, whether it's by cooking or by um, whatever has uh, been done by way of grinding it in, in uh, the food company before you even get it, um, this will increase the number of calories you get, and everyone knows that. So we should have a, a modified labeling system, but there have been a whole series of attempts to think about what the new system could, should be, and no one can agree on what it should be. So it's not going to happen right. for the moment. Right. Well, the thing is, is that even if you could uh, do that, you'd, you still need some sort of uh, – I mean, the body is so complicated that you simply can't really say what's going to happen. Even there's no way to adjust it at all. Because uh, my favorite, you know, example I put to everyone is that if I drank uh, a gallon of uh, vegetable oil right now, if I could do it without throwing up, I simply wouldn't absorb the vast majority of those calories, even though they're liquid and I should be able to absorb them fairly well. I'd just be overwhelming my system, and it would all, uh, you know, leave relatively unprocessed. I mean, it's just impossible to. It's impossible to, uh, to account for the differences in the way humans consume. I mean you could get probably some sort of close average based on what the av- average person eats and how fast the average person eats. But it's just an incredibly complicated system, right? Yes, exactly. And that's a great example. Uh, and it really does draw attention to the fact that part of the problem with the current system is that it is too simple. Um, but then by... Uh, the same token, uh, any change to the system uh, in terms of the way that we we put um, some kind of numbers on the food labels um, is going to be complicated, and and complexity is a hard sell. Yeah, so I mean, we, you know, I've thought of th- things. I mean, you probably have too, uh, like a, a some kind of traffic light system where uh, you have red, amber, and and green. Um, and uh, you, you associate those with um, the particular numbers that you put on the, on the food label and say, uh, uh, if, it's, uh, if, it's, if it's a red, then uh, probably actually you, you, you know, under various circumstances you're going to get more calories than you expect from this, and, uh, and if it's green, you get less or whatever. Oh, so base, base it on expectations rather than on uh, health. So not, don't have it be a – because most of the health claims are garbage anyway. So it's like uh, based on expectations, like uh, that's an interesting idea. Yes, uh, something that, that emphasizes that um, nothing very precise is going to come out, but you here are some ways to think about what it's going to do to you. Yeah, I mean I think the real damage, and you know you touch, touch on this, but the real, real damage is this, is that um, once you apply numbers to something – and this is my problem with much of nutritional science in general. Once you apply numbers to something, then the average person believes that those numbers have meaning. And so now there is this idea that there is a simple number that has a, a meaning, and in fact, uh, it, it doesn't. And it's so you can't go back and tell someone, well, your whole, you know, m- you know your whole mentality about the way uh, food works is based uh, – on this thing that you think is simple and is accurate, but in fact, I can't give you any good numbers. Sorry, people won't buy that. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, to me, the you know the ultimate example of this, of course, is the fact that um, 
that uh, what uh, my group and I have been emphasizing is this enormous difference between raw and cooked. And if you just look at the numbers in the USDA website, which is the source for where uh, a lot of the materials or a lot of the food labels come from, uh, what you will see is that uh, you are supposed to get the same number of calories from uh, raw food as you do from cooked. So if you take you know, a carrot and you cook it raw, uh, sorry, you eat it raw and, uh, and then you cook it, according to the USDA website, you're going to get the same number of calories. Well, this is completely absurd. Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and uh, you know, this is actually, ultimately, could be dangerous because people who believe in numbers, and as you say, you know, people tend to believe in numbers once they're given them, uh, will uh, stick to their guns and use them to support their philosophy. And what could be dangerous is that uh, you could, as a result, get uh, too little food from uh, eating it raw. And that's a choice if you're an adult, and if you're a child, it's um, something that your, your parents give to you. And that's where it really could be dangerous. You know, we, we have cases uh, that have been reported of, um, of infants dying from eating raw food. Right, because, well, right. I mean, so... I, mean, I have like, a question when you're ready. Oh, you I don't think it's related, but oh, when, whenever you're ready. Oh, if it's, it's not related to, uh, we'll, 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 are they? We'll get it in a minute. If it's yeah, not, if it's not no related. problem. All right, so let's let me because if people haven't read the book yet, I encourage them to go out and uh, and get the book. It's uh, it's a fun read. It's uh, well written. Uh, and, uh, and right now we're really talking about the f- the except for the nutrition labels, we're talking about the first half. So the first half, I would guess, professor is more. Um, contentious in the scientific community and the second half is more contentious in the kind of sociological uh, community and the second half is more contentious kind of sociologically. Would you say that's true or no? Yes, probably. That's right. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I mean, you know, it's not that contentious, but, but nevertheless, uh, that's where it's provocative. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's a better way to put it. So let's stay with the, the first half. And the first half is really about this, this thesis of um, cooking. And, and I was completely fascinated because, uh, Professor, you, you spent a lot of time actually hanging out with, uh, with great apes, uh, you know, chimps and whatnot in, in, in Africa, observing them, eating the way they eat, uh, do, doing these sorts of things. How long, how, long per, how, um, how much time per day does the average uh, great ape take eating? Um, so a chimpanzee which weighs, um, I don't know, uh, something like 100 pounds, uh, will spend uh, roughly five or six hours just chewing. Just so, chewing. Not yeah, gathering, just chewing. Just chewing, yeah. So, so uh, you know, they'll climb up into three and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but literally with food in their mouth, just moving their jaws up and down, uh, it is about half the day. And so this is one of the incredibly striking things about uh, the difference between us and uh, our cousin primates because... Uh, it's all related to body size. You know, the bigger you are, then the more time you've got to spend chewing because you've got to get more food into your body. And um, so if we were eating our food raw in the same way that the chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans do, then we would be spending something around seven or eight hours chewing per day. Now, now the reason, uh, for those of you who haven't read the book yet, that, you would, that we would have to chew more than uh, the chimp is... I mean, I would guess not just because our muscles are less strong, but because we require more energy to run our brains, yes? And we have a less efficient uh, intestinal system. Well, okay, now here's the funny thing about our brains. Um, They're incredibly expensive to run, and you can never turn them off, unlike a computer. 
And so, you know, they're expensive to run when you're asleep. They're expensive to run when, when you're awake. Um, but uh, even though they are costing uh, something like uh, between a quarter and a fifth of all the energy that you eat um, when, when you're resting, uh, something like um, uh, 25% of the energy in, in your body is you being used to run your brain, nevertheless, the total amount of energy that humans are using when they're asleep is the same in proportion to body weight as it is in any other primate. Huh. So we're not taking in more energy uh, on uh, average. Is that because we're spending less energy on digestion? Exactly. So, so the, the solution that many people like, and it seems to really uh, have a lot of sense, to why it is that we are able to afford to run a big brain, which is obviously so important, is that uh, we cut back on running our guts. And, and this makes every sense, because we have the smallest digestive system in relationship to body size for any primate, and we have the largest brain in relationship to body size for any primate. Mm. And the gut is one of the most uh, expensive parts of the body. And our, is it, is it, it's been a while, but isn't it also true that our brain is more more um, calorically expensive to run per gram than uh, most other brains? We just run it at a faster rate. We overclock ourselves, yes? Uh, no, no, that, that's not right. No? Um, well, it, it's the same. A, a, a gram of our brain, uh, it costs the same as a gram of mouse brain. Ah, okay, good. Yeah. Nice. All right, so like a whale, just, a whale takes a lot more energy to run their brain, but, but they have a much bigger body, so it's a smaller percentage. Uh, for which one? For like a whale, anything, something with a huge brain, an elephant, something with yeah, a giant yes, brain. Yes, exactly. Yes, right. All right, cool. So we are not overclockers. So, uh, interesting. Uh, okay, now, uh, so on this, uh, I mean, some recent papers that have come out and uh, see what your response is. Uh, your co- uh, colleague, uh, colleagues, I guess, uh, uh, Lieberman, Professor Lieberman, uh, who I guess is in your same building or in the building next to you at Harvard. Uh, absolutely, yes. He's, a, he's about uh, 20 yards away. Ah, yes. Yeah, so you two can duke it out in the real life. You don't need to write papers. You can just go uh, have it out with each other. Absolutely, yes, yeah. right. And, uh, and Professor Zink uh, wrote a paper basically saying that they think that uh, chewing, uh, a pounding rather, and, and beating things with tools prior to um, – uh, prior to consuming them is enough to um, allow us to get the extra energy out rather than uh, cooking. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my, my thought is that uh, it's a very odd idea. I mean, I, you know, they're, they're both uh, good friends, and, uh, and Katie Zink was my, my student at one point. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I, I like what they do. But I think it's, this particular conclusion is odd because... Uh, it doesn't seem to pay attention to uh, what we know about raw food. You know, we know that um, that uh, even with incredibly high-class food, uh, you put into an electric blender, uh, you, as a human, will still lose weight. And what they're saying is that way back in the Paleolithic, when you're using incredibly crude stone tools, that people could have done enough by way of pounding and cutting their food to um, increase the... Uh, ease of digestion and um, and get enough food out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the study, by the way, if people want to read it, is called "Impact of Meat and uh, Lower Paleolithic Food Processing Techniques on Chewing in Humans in uh, Nature." I, you know, I think to me one of the main things about the the paper that I didn't get was they're really just they were focusing on time to create a bolus to swallow, right? Which is not necessarily the 
the the only thing that's important. It's part of it, right? Decreases the amount of time you have to chew, but not the amount you have to consume to get it to to get the um, the calories required, right? Is yeah, that is yeah, that, that that is absolutely right? Um, so it's it's very awkward with humans because it's very difficult to get permission to be able to study what happens when people eat raw meat, say, because the authorities are so worried that people are going to get uh, some kind of a worm or something from eating raw meat. Yeah. So, so they were stuck with um, seeing what happens in terms of the time spent chewing. And, you know, they did very nice experiments uh, showing that, that if you pound your meat or, or even just slice it, then you will spend less time chewing. But it doesn't come to the heart of the matter, as you said. And here's another problem. Um, we actually uh, have uh, very good evidence as a profession that stone tools of uh, the type that they're talking about were used long before humans uh, emerged into their present body form. So, so the genus Homo, um, you know, were Homo sapiens, and an earlier form that has the same basic body shape is Homo erectus, and that happened around 1.9 million years ago. But then prior to that, all the way back to 3 million years ago, you've got stone tools being used by somebody, and those somebodies um, were pre-human, ape-like forms. And right. so, you know, that's another difficulty, that, uh, that if they were using those tools to modify their food, it didn't do anything for them for a very long time. Yeah, you know what you know what you should do, Professor. You should get you should let people know here, like on uh, this or any other show. We will volunteer to chew raw meat. We don't have to spit it out because we're not part of a, a sanctioned study. Like, isn't there some way to just create a voluntary study, or is that completely unethical? No, unfortunately, we're not allowed to do that because because when we tried to publish it, um, the the uh, journals will ask for the statement showing that we did it all ethically. Huh. You could only write about it in a book, then. You could never publish it in a journal. Yeah, exactly. And that's you, right. And you'd that's be run out true. of the community on a rail, I presume. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, because the thing is, right, if you're, if you're writing books, right, I mean, clearly you, you are, you just, I mean, you could get a bunch of volunteers. I could probably find, uh, you know, 100 volunteers like today who would be willing to chew and swallow the meat and not worry about it. But, you know, then the question is how would you trace our uh, – how would you trace our um, – You'd have to do it inside of a uh, chamber to measure how much we were absorbing, I guess, which is that. Yeah, costs money. you know, it becomes complicated. But uh, but I appreciate the thought, and uh, hey, maybe I'll get get back to you with some some studies. I mean, you know, we'd we'd love to be able to to follow what happens um, to uh, the microbiome of people eating raw food and people eating cooked food. So you know what we're talking about there. Yeah, yeah. The no. the, uh, yeah. the bacteria in the colon. And there's increasing evidence that this is quite important, um, a contributor to uh, the amount of energy we get out of our food. And very little is known about um, anything that differs between the raw and the cooked uh, foods. So shifting people from raw to cooked diets and vice versa uh, and uh, recording their microbiome would be you know, it's certainly something that people are going to be wanting to investigate soon. Yeah, well, maybe we can find some quasi-ethical way to do it. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, see if I have any more uh, like uh, pressing questions on the on the f- first section. Um, well, let's, let's let's move to the, the second section now, and then we can we can move back and forth. So, the first section describes um, you know a, a bunch of reasons why um, 
the best explanation, uh, the cooking hypothesis, I guess you call it, the best explanation for how we got to be the way we are is that we started cooking. Yeah. Uh, now, the second section of the book deals with what the um, cultural impacts of that are. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's the part where, you know, it seems like uh, it's, it's interesting, get, but it gets in, in uh, hot water for, you know, or could potentially get in hot water because it deals a lot with um, gender difference. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I'm not going to take a stab at, at uh, cliff noting that one. So you want to give a basic uh, rundown of what, what cooking allowed to have happen? And Yes. Well, sure. So uh, here's the first observation, that uh, even though nowadays in uh, enlightened places in, um, in Western Europe and the United States and so on, uh, you have men who are really interested in cooking, um, the fact is that in every culture around the world, in every society, um, it is uh, almost entirely a woman's role to do the ordinary domestic cooking, the ordinary household cooking. And um, this is uh, uh, the most striking of all of the economic differences between men and women, that women do the cooking. They, the times when men do the cooking are special occasions, when you have feasts, when you have uh, some kind of great public affair and um, uh, men come out and, and jointly uh, roast the elephant, as it were. Right. What, I, and, uh, in the book, right, you point to the fact that the ability to not spend a lot of time chewing and having like uh, your basic uh, – like some basic staples and calories already cooked allowed more time for – uh, one it's one group, the males, to go out and hunt, and therefore the other section devolved on the females to do that. The kind of we know it's going to be their uh, cooking. Is that accurate or no? No, that that, that is right. That if you look at small scale society, uh, it, it's kind of ironic in a way because uh, I, I mentioned earlier that that uh, if we were eating our food raw, uh, then we'd be spending you know, something like seven or eight hours uh, chewing. And so now we eat our food cooked, and we can save lots and lots of time. I mean, instead of seven or eight hours, it's one hour a day, if you look, or less than one hour a day, all around the world. doesn't matter where you are. Uh, it's just the human condition. Uh, one, less than one hour a day chewing your food. So what do you do with all the spare time? Well, here's the irony. The irony is that the women are mostly spending that time uh, gathering food and cooking it and preparing it. Right. But, but meanwhile, the men, uh, in some ways, get off lightly. And the reason the men get off lightly is not that they don't do anything. Uh, they do. They, they do a lot of uh, uh, complementary ways to get food. I mean, if you're living in a very simple way in a small-scale society um, as a hunter and gatherer, then the men are doing a lot of hunting. But they have options. Women don't have options. They are absolutely required culturally to be there every day producing the, the basic food. Um, but the men, if they want to, they don't have to hunt. You know, they can go off and, and uh, lie under a tree and gamble or visit girlfriends in the neighboring area or, or go to war or whatever else it is. And for, for those of you that are listening to this and ha haven't read the book, I encourage you before you draw any sort of opinions to go read the relevant sections of the book because – uh, professor, you go through a, a series of um, societies that appear to contradict what you're saying, but then you, you have arguments that, as to how they actually kind of fit into the general pattern, correct? Yes, I mean, there are astonishing consistencies. I, I would say that. That's right. Um, and so what we, we do in the book is to uh, – I try and think about 
where does this pattern come from? Why is it that uh, universally in, in human societies, it is the women who are doing the cooking and uh, the men who have relative freedom and are able to absolutely rely on women providing food for them, uh, which is so unlike any other animal. And uh, I, I come to the conclusion that uh, this has got something to do with a very basic feature of cooking, that once you rely on cooking, then there's something funny about the way the food is produced, and that is this, that it is very easily stolen. It's very easily um, used by people other than the ones who collected the food. So compare this with... Um, uh, if you're a chimpanzee, say, you, you climb into a tree, you uh, pick a fruit and pop it into your mouth and nobody can take it from you. But if you're cooking food, you absolutely have to put the food onto a fire and just sit there for however long it takes for the food to cook. And during that time, someone else can come along and take the food. So that means that uh, the people who are doing the cooking and people who have collected this food are vulnerable to social competition. And so this is now, you know, a very strange kind of concept compared to thinking about us uh, actually in the kitchen. But nevertheless, it is a reality of cooking on the campfire. Huh. And I think that reality leads to the following dynamic. The women end up uh, needing to be socially protected from the mm, kids from the woman next door or from some lousy bachelor who doesn't have a, a wife or from some other visiting man. And the person who protects her is the husband. So in the end, it does fall back on the old, the men do that kind of labor because of just physical strength. Well, physical strength is part of it, but it, probably even more important is just the compact among men. It's the, uh, it's the consensus among men that uh, they will uh, act as a sort of unified body uh, to declare that uh, if somebody has been accused and found guilty of um, uh, pinching food from behind a woman's back, uh, then they will punish them. And so the thing is that they can act in consensus, you know, because when, when a wife says to a husband, look, you know, somebody's always taking food from my fire, then he doesn't necessarily go and confront them himself. He'll go to the elders and say, we've got a problem in the camp. And then the elders will do something jointly. And that's where the real social power comes from. And, and in your book, you say that most, uh, most historical and um, you know, uh, small societies, current small societies that are studied, the, um, the cooking, keeping the cooking in the family unit, unit, the food, is more important even than sex. Yes, I mean, you know, well, we think of marriage, of course, as uh, something that is is really purely about sex and having babies, and obviously that's a hugely important part of it. But it's very striking finding places where, um, from a man's point of view, what is absolutely more important than raising a family when he first you know, enters his 20s and so on and is becoming a man um, is that there is somebody to cook for him. And if he doesn't have a mother who is still alive providing his food or occasionally a sister, then he needs someone else to do it. And uh, he, he will somehow arrange that. And in some societies, you find that his first wife will be someone who is post-menopausal. She might be in her 60s. Uh, no way that she's going to provide him any children. But he provides, she provides him with food. And that means that he can go away and do manly activities 
during the day and uh, be as masculine as he wants to be. Otherwise, he's forced to do the cooking himself. And, and in a world of stereotypes, then uh, that means that uh, he can't really adopt a male role. And, and also you say in these traditional societies, going back to you say when men cook, they're the ones, or when they bring back food, hunt, hunted food, meat, it's typically shared in the community, whereas they gathered food, staples, cooked foods that the women would, are not, not ever shared typically. Yes, I mean, there are a number of ways in which uh, the relationships among men in, in these small-scale societies are, um, are full of cooperation in a way that is, is strikingly not so true of the women. So it tends to be the case that each woman has her own fire. She puts her own food that she has gathered with her own personal hands uh, onto that fire, and she shares that food with uh, her own children and uh, maybe, uh, well, definitely her husband and uh, maybe one or two other close relatives. But it's pretty limited, the sharing, whereas the men are much more likely when they catch something uh, if it's big enough to share, then they will share it very widely with um, the other men uh, in the community, and, and they share it with their own families. Hmm. All right, now let's get to the crux. Here's the, here's, here's the big question. So if that was the case for how we evolved, not just physically, but as uh, culturally, as a society, to be where we are now, right? It, let's just assume it's all, that it's all completely accurate. What does that tell us about the way we need to – or does it tell us anything about the way that we need to um, interact today in a society where most people, they cook if they want to, they go to a restaurant if they want to, they order out if they want to. I'm talking in richer societies like you know here in the US um, where we're completely unhinged from any of these uh, needs, right? We all have – actual jobs that take up, uh, you know, eight hours of the day and cooking and eating is a relatively small proportion of, uh, of time spent. Is there, I mean, clearly there are echoes of what happened more than echoes, right? But is there, is there any, is there anything for the future? Like, need we be bound by it anymore? No, I I don't think there's any reason to think we have to be bound by the social patterns. Uh, I mean, we would, we would have to acknowledge them if, in fact, there was any evidence of, a, of an evolutionary impact on our psychology. I, don't, I haven't seen any such evidence so far. So it seems to me that, um, that we should look at what happens in uh, the human species in the past and in many societies today and, uh, and be sort of conscious of the fact that we want to get away from it in a world of, uh, of egalitarianism between the, the sectors. Right. I mean, I don't remember whether you state that explicitly in the book, but I mean, the interesting thing to me is that we that there really doesn't seem to be once it's once it's no longer a physical necessity, we no longer need to act that way anymore. Right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Uh, On the other hand, you know, you might say that there are benefits to it. I think one of the loveliest um, uh, papers, uh, studies that came out in the um, time since the book was published was one that drew attention to the way that um, eating around the fire uh, is a, a is a system that is conducive to the most lovely kinds of stories and uh, conversations that occur in uh, the hunters and gatherers of South Africa. So the Bushman there, studied by Polly Wiesner, uh, she recorded what people talk about all day. 
And basically, during the day, people talk about very little. Uh, there are a few words just uh, involved in uh, organizing each other as to where we're going and what we're doing and uh, how to cut up a piece of meat and so on. But the, all the interesting conversations, she said, happen around the fire in the evening. And that's when uh, the stories are told about uh, the original myths of the society or some tremendous hunt that happened or some hilarious incident happened uh, with someone in another group, uh, whatever. Mm. So, you know, that reminds me of the fact that people do say that uh, the conversations around a meal uh, with your children are enormously important and that there's something that is you know, very sadly lost when everyone just watches television um, while they're eating. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's for sure true. I mean, the thing is, is that there's <laughs> there's the good and the bad of what used to be. Right. So it's uh, the I mean, I would hope that we could degender the idea of sitting around a, a campfire and talking or or sitting around a meal, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you know, we certainly should not be bound to the notion that women are the cooks. Um, it, that has been true in our past, and, and that, that's, you know, that's bad from the point of view of uh, stereotypes and uh, assigning people to a particular role. Um, hopefully we can get way past that as we move into a, a, a post-gendered world. What are your thoughts on the kind of observation I've heard many times that uh, most of the time in modern couples in the U.S., um, when there is going to be a shared um, a shared a uh, shared housework between uh, the man and the woman in a couple, uh, that the man almost always takes the cooking and the women almost always take the uh, cleaning role on that. This is not my observation. I've heard this from, from many people. Uh, do you think that's because cooking now is seen as a high prestige thing? And it's just well, yet another... I don't know. I mean, that, yeah, that's a really fun speculation. I mean, you know, one of the questions I think is fascinating, which I haven't seen any really satisfactory answers to, is why do men tend to do the barbecuing? Well, you touch on that in your book, right? That meat cooking has, since time immemorial, meat cooking, if men were going to cook anything, it was going to be the meat. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one possibility. You know, another possibility is that uh, because uh, meat tends to be the, the center of attention for the, the meal, uh, the thing that makes that particular meal special, then the men want to be in charge of it because, you know, they get all the excitement of, uh, of, of producing it. Right. So even as we go towards less less gendering of things, we actually still maintain this sort of problematic uh, gender differences. Yeah, I mean, you know, of, of course, uh, you know, there are, there are many other dynamics involved about uh, who's looking after the children, who's taking children to school, you know, who's getting the jobs and so on. But, um, but the, the point I would certainly want to emphasize is that uh, there doesn't seem to be any reason why our evolutionary past of uh, women doing the cooking has to be the it does not have to be the evolutionary future. Okay, we got to wrap up, but I do have a caller with a question for the guests. Here. All right, cool. All right, uh, caller, you're on the air. Hey, uh, Dave, Professor Rangham. Uh, this is uh, Scooter in Montana, and actually, uh, Professor, I'm a, a Harvard anthropology grad, though I don't think we crossed paths there. Um, okay, but I, this is actually a, a question that was uh, some some folks in the chat room were kicking around is uh, uh, just sort of generally how does fermentation play into um, uh, kind of caloric uh, benefits 
Oh, I think it's a terrific question because we don't know that much about fermentation. It's very clear that um, uh, that when you uh, uh, ferment your grains uh, in water to producing a beer or you, you ferment your meat, um, that it increases the net energy gain for the eaters. So it looks like there's all sorts of ways in which uh, fermentation is a sort of functional equivalent of cooking. The, the question in my mind that is unresolved is how far this goes back in time. You know, as you probably know, uh, pottery only goes back to something like uh, 20, 25,000 years ago. Sure. Um, could people have been fermenting in skin bags uh, for some tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years before then? Uh, could they have found ways to ferment uh, even without containers like that? Uh, there's all sorts of research uh, possibilities that we still don't have any very good ideas about, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm, great question. Um, yeah, but was, is there evidence of food stockpiling, in which case there would be auto-fermentation or redding and things like natural wells or hollows or anything? Uh, right. No, I, I don't think, uh, you know, only very, very recently for that sort of thing. Uh, that would be wonderful to, to find evidence um, of the kind of thing that you see in the South Seas nowadays or, or relatively recently where um, cooked starches could be kept for, I think people sometimes think, 100 years uh, in underground uh, cool places. Huh. Huh. Wow. That's a great question. So uh, we're going to get kicked off the air. One question on the way out, Professor, and I thank you so much for, for being on. Do people pester you about the paleo diet all the time? Oh, uh, they occasionally ask, and um, yeah, I mean, I like a Mediterranean diet myself. <laughs> All right, I just, I had to be, I'd be remiss if I didn't, because uh, it seems to me to be completely not uh, in the, you know, part of what you talk about there, but I'm sure people pester you about it because they see the word paleo. Well, yes, that's true, right. No, I, I'm not wild about the paleo diet myself, and, and uh, I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of fantasy about the paleo diet that... Um, uh, it, like so much of nutritional science, you know, people get hold of a of a very particular idea and really push it, and uh, it, it's still an incredibly primitive area. I mean, it amazed me that uh, when I started getting interested in cooking, there was uh, no systematic literature looking at the impact of cooking on uh, the energy production uh, on the food, and we've had to do that work ourselves. I mean, it just really brings home the fact that this is a very exciting area, the whole area of nutrition, uh, that uh, still has a tremendous uh, way to go before we really understand it well. All right. Well, uh, we've been uh, speaking with uh, Professor uh, Richard Rangham uh, from Harvard University, author of uh, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Professor, thank you so much for being on the air with us today. I had a great time. Really appreciate it, Dave. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. And uh, on the way out, I want to mention two things. Uh, Shai wrote in about uh, basbuza, which is a semolina cake soaked with uh, syrup. He wanted to make it less sweet. Use a low DE. That's dextrose equivalent glucose syrup. You can get it on Amazon. It's about 40% as sweet. It's about 81 bricks. You can water it down a little bit. It'll be a little more than a little less than half the sweetness of the sugar that you want to uh, add. And one shout out, the Museum of Food and Drinks, two shout outs, Museum of Food and Drinks Spring Benefit is uh, next week. There are still tickets available. 
And uh, my son, the quad, uh, has a, who's uh, on the autistic spectrum, uh, goes to a twice exceptional school called the Quad Preparatory School. They're having their third annual Founders Gala. I'm going to be making cocktails. Franklin Becker's going to be cooking. Uh, Mark Ladner and Christina Tozzi are, are putting stuff out there. And you can go to eventbrite.com and type in Quad Preparatory. Thank you so much, Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.